Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. You got speed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel up? Okay, I'm up. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby lights, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh... Hello and welcome. This is Michael Anderson. You're listening to episode 178 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 9, The Crew. A well-seasoned crew was selected for Apollo 9. I want to start with McDivitt. James Alton McDivitt was born on June 10, 1929, in Chicago, Illinois. He is of Irish descent, and, like many other astronauts, he was a Boy Scout and earned the rank of Tenderfoot. He graduated from Kalamazoo Central High School in Kalamazoo, Michigan, in 1947. In 1959, he received a Bachelor of Science degree in Aeronautical Engineering from the University of Michigan. He graduated first in his class. McDivitt is married with four children, Michael, born in 57, Anne, born in 1958, Patrick, born in 1960, and Kathleen, born in 1966. McDivitt had a long military career. He joined the United States Air Force in 1951 and retired with the rank of Brigadier General in 1972. He received his pilot's wings and commissioned as second lieutenant in May 1952 at Williams Air Force Base, Arizona, and completed combat crew training in November of 1952. He flew 145 combat missions in F-80 and F-86s with the 35th Bombardment Squadron during the Korean War. He returned to the U.S. in September 1953 and served as pilot and assistant operations officer with the 19th Fighter Interceptor Squadron at Dow Air Force Base, Maine. In November 1954, McDivitt entered advanced flying school at Tyndall Air Force Base, Florida and in July 1955 went to McGuire Air Force Base, New Jersey, where he served as pilot, operations officer, and later as flight commander with the 332nd Fighter Interceptor Squadron. After he graduated from the University of Michigan, McDivitt went to Edwards Air Force Base, California, as a student test pilot. He remained there with the Air Force Flight Test Center as an experimental flight test pilot. 
While there, he completed the Air Force Experimental Test Pilot School and Aerospace Research Pilot School, and he joined the Manned Spacecraft Operations Branch in July 1962. McDivitt logged over 5,000 flight hours, including flying as a chase pilot for Robert M. White's historic X-15 flight on July 17, 1962, in which White reached an altitude of 59.5 miles and became the first to be awarded astronaut wings based on the U.S. Air Force definition of 50 miles, or 80 kilometers. McDivitt was selected as an astronaut by NASA in September 1962 as part of Astronaut Group 2. He was chosen as the command pilot of Gemini 4, becoming the first U.S. astronaut to command his first spaceflight. Only three other Gemini astronauts from this group were chosen to command their first spaceflights. They were Frank Borman on Gemini 7, Neil Armstrong, Gemini 8, and Elliot C. And you may recall Elliot C. was killed in the crash of a T-38 trainer three months before his Gemini 9 mission. On the Gemini 4 mission, McDivitt flew with Ed White as his co-pilot. It launched on June 3, 1965, and the mission lasted four days and made 66 orbits, allowing the United States to come close to the early space endurance record of five days set by the Soviet Vostok 5 flight. I cover Gemini 4 in episodes 60 through 62. Since Apollo 9 was McDivitt's last flight, I will continue with his biography. After Apollo 9, McDivitt became manager of Lunar Landing Operations in May 1969 and led a team that planned the Lunar Exploration Program and redesigned the spacecraft to accomplish this task. In August 1969, he became manager of the Apollo Spacecraft Program and was the program manager for Apollo 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16. After leaving the Apollo program, he was offered the opportunity to be the shuttle program director, but elected to leave NASA to pursue a career in business. McDivitt retired from the U.S. Air Force and left NASA in June of 1972 to take a position of executive vice president Corporate Affairs for Consumers Power Company. In March 1975, he joined Pullman Incorporated as Executive Vice President and Director. In October 1975, he became President of the Pullman Standard Division. In January 1981, he joined Rockwell International, where he was the Senior Vice President for Government and International Operations. McDivitt retired in 1995. Now I have a couple of audio clips of McDivitt. On the first clip, McDivitt is commenting on his training for Apollo 9. When we first got these two spacecraft, I figured, well, if it's, if it's so hard to do to train for this spacecraft, and we now have two, it should only be two times as hard as this. But I found out, much to my amazement, that it's much more difficult than two times 
the old training problem. We, because I have to learn how to fly this one, I have to learn how to fly this one. Then I have to learn how to fly these two together. Then I have to learn how to fly them this way, and this way, and some other way. And there's so many different modes that we can get into that we really have more than just two configurations. We probably have somewhere between 8 and 10 or 12, maybe. When we consider the S4B and the ascent and the descent stage and the command module and the service module and the different ways we can hook them together. Got a lot of variables there. Right. So it's very difficult to train for this mission. Next, I have McDivitt commenting on the appearance of the lunar module. It's the most unaerodynamic shape I think I've ever seen. Uh, the, matter of fact, all the models I see it has nice. The models have nice straight sides, and they're hard and they're rigid and everything. The first time I saw a real lamb, I looked at it and it had what looked like cellophane sides and, and uh, aluminum foil roof. And I, oh, they're kidding! But it's really that's what it really is. But it doesn't need to be strong. It doesn't need all those aerodynamic shapes on the outside because that's not its mission. Now let's move on to the second member of the crew of Apollo 9. David Randolph Scott was born on June 6, 1932 on Randolph Field, which is how he received his middle name. Randolph Field is located near San Antonio, Texas. Scott was of Scottish descent, and like McDivitt, he was also active in the Boy Scouts of America, where he received its second highest rank of Life Scout. Scott was educated at the Texas Military Institute and Riverside Polytech High School in Riverside, California, where he joined the swim team and set several state and local swim records. Scott also attended the Western High School in Washington, D.C., graduating in June 1949. In high school, he was an honor student, and he was on the swim team. Next, Scott attended the University of Michigan for one year, where he was an honor student in the engineering school, a member of the swimming team, and pledged Sigma Chi fraternity before finally receiving an invitation to attend West Point. Scott graduated from West Point, fifth in his class of 633 students, in 1954. Because of his high standing in the class, he was able to choose which branch of the military he would serve. Scott chose the Air Force because he wanted to fly jets. Scott was accepted into the Air Force and began jet training. He completed pilot training at Webb Air Force Base, Texas in 1955 and then reported for gunnery training at Laughlin Air Force Base, Texas, and Luke Air Force Base, Arizona. He was assigned to the 32nd Tactical Fighter Squadron at Sosterberg Air Force Base in the Netherlands from April 1956 to July 1960. Upon completing his tour of duty, he returned to the United States for study at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. In 1959, he married his first wife, Anne, and they subsequently had two children. In 1962, he received both a Master of Science degree in Aeronautics and Astronautics and the degree of Engineer in Aeronautics and Astronautics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Next, he went to Edwards Air Force Base in California to train as a test pilot. 
In October 1963, he was selected in the third group of U.S. astronauts chosen. Scott was the first of the Group 3 astronauts to be selected to fly and was also the first of the Group 3 astronauts to command a mission of his own. As soon as Scott was assigned to the Gemini 8 mission, he began concentrating on extravehicular exercise, eventually going over 300 airplane zero-g parabolas and more than 20 hours on an air-bearing table. The 6 by 7 meter table was used for astronauts to practice EVA maneuvers, supported by an air cushion. They used a zip gun to move from one place to another, which gave them some idea of what it would be like to start and stop in space. On March 16, 1966, Scott and command pilot Neil Armstrong were launched into space on the Gemini 8 mission, a flight originally scheduled to last three days, in which Scott was to perform an EVA. But the mission terminated early, due to a malfunctioning thruster. The crew did perform the first successful docking of two vehicles in space and demonstrated great piloting skills in overcoming the thruster problem and bringing the spacecraft to a safe landing. Scott would later perform EVAs on his two subsequent flights, one of which was of course Apollo 9 where he served as command module pilot. Since Scott has another flight after Apollo 9, I'm going to stop his biography here. The final member of the Apollo 9 crew was Russell Lewis Swigert, born October 25, 1935 in Neptune Township, New Jersey. He grew up on a 45-acre farm that produced hay and vegetables, plus they raised poultry and cows. As a youth, his ambition was to be a pilot and a cowboy. After graduating from Manasquan High School in 1952, he earned a Bachelor of Science degree in Aeronautical Engineering on scholarship from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 1956. His family's annual income when he received the scholarship was only $1,800. In 1963, he earned a Master of Science degree in Aeronautics and Astronautics from MIT. Like his crewmates, Swigert was active in the Boy Scouts of America, where he earned the rank of first class. From 1956 till 1963, Swigert served in the U.S. Air Force and the Massachusetts Air National Guard 101st Tactical Fighter Squadron. He gained over 4,000 hours of flight time, including 3,500 hours in high-performance jet aircraft. Prior to joining NASA, Swigert was a research scientist at the Experimental Astronomy Laboratory at MIT, and his work there involved researching upper atmospheric physics, star tracking, and stabilization of stellar images. Then, in... October of 1963, Swigert was chosen as part of NASA's Astronaut Group 3. In 1969, he flew his first and only space flight, 
serving as Lunar Module Pilot for Apollo 9. Swigert spent just over 241 hours in space and performed the first EVA of the Apollo program. The flight plan called for him to demonstrate an emergency transfer from the Lunar Module to the Command Module using handrails on the Lunar Module, but he began to suffer from Space Adaptation Syndrome on the first day in orbit, forcing the postponement of the EVA. Eventually, he improved enough to perform a relatively brief EVA. But the space sickness experienced on Apollo 9 held him back from other lunar flight. Deke Slayton, who was responsible for all flight assignments, believed that Swigert would have been a logical lunar module pilot on subsequent lunar missions. In fact, the standard rotation would have placed him on the backup crew for Apollo 12 and the prime crew for Apollo 15. But that bout of space sickness had Slayton and the doctors worried and they didn't believe it was a good idea to send him up again. So Swigert became a motion sickness guinea pig for six months of testing. The protracted testing period also contributed to Swigert not being assigned to the Apollo 12 backup crew. When he returned to Houston, instead of going back into the Apollo program, he was assigned to Skylab. Swigert believed that this assignment to Skylab instead of Apollo was also due to his political liberalism that he shared with his then-wife, Claire. Slayton felt that her fervent political stances, including anti-blockbusting activism, caused him a few problems with his colleagues. During this period, a Houston radio broadcaster characterized Swigert as the closest thing to a freak astronaut. Swigert was eventually assigned as backup commander of Skylab 2, the first manned American space station mission, which flew during the spring of 1973. Following the loss of the space station's thermal shield during launch, Swigert assumed the responsibility for development of hardware and procedures for erecting an emergency solar shade and deploying a jammed solar array wing. These operations helped save the space station. Swigert was awarded the NASA Distinguished Service Medal in 1969 and the NASA Exceptional Service Medal for his work on Skylab 2 in 1973. After serving on the support crew of Skylab 4, Swigert was more interested in cultivating managerial skills than going over to the space shuttle development work which was underway. He said on the NASA JSC Oral History Project Guide, quote, By the time I had, you know, done a lot of work on Gemini in a support role, and then, of course, everything on Apollo, and now all of this on Skylab, and to go cycle back into the very beginning of the space shuttle, which was not going to fly for, at that point, something like six years, and best guesses of anybody in the business was maybe eight years. I figured, you know, another eight years of basically going to the same kinds of meetings, making the same kinds of decisions, going to the same places. It was like, been there, 
done that. End quote. While retaining his flight status, he was reassigned to NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. as Director of User Affairs in the Office of Applications in 1974. In this capacity, he was responsible for transferring NASA technology, primarily Landsat-1 applications, to the outside world and working with technology users, including the Department of Agriculture, to bring an understanding of their needs into NASA. He came to regard this as a thankless position and a very hard sell to potential clients due to their intrinsic resistance to new processes. This, and the dearth of immediate flight opportunities, ultimately precipitated his departure from NASA in 1977. After leaving NASA, Swigert had a lengthy and impressive career. First, he served for two years as California Governor Jerry Brown's assistant for science and technology before being appointed by Brown to the California Energy Commission for five and a half years. In 1984, Swigert, along with cosmonaut Alexei Leonov, established the Association of Space Explorers, ASE, which is open to all people who have flown in orbit around the Earth. Swigert also chaired the ASE Near-Earth Object Committee, which produced a benchmark report and submitted it to the United Nations Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space. The report's title was Asteroid Threats, A Call for Global Response. Next, Swigert founded and was president of Courier Satellite Services, Incorporated, a global satellite communications company which developed low-Earth orbit satellites to provide worldwide affordable data services. Then Swigert went to work for CTA Commercial Systems as executive vice president and director of low-Earth orbit systems. Swigert led CTA's efforts in developing the GEMNET system, which was a second-generation low-Earth orbit communications satellite constellation designed to provide regular commercial electronic messaging services on a global basis. Swigert's satellite and telecommunications work involved him in the development of international communications, regulations, and policies, including participation in the 1992 and 1995 World Radio Communication Conferences of the International Telecommunications Union. He served at the 1995 World Radio Communications Conferences as a U.S. delegate. He also worked extensively in Russia and the former Soviet Union on scientific and telecommunications matters. Swigert retired from Aloha Networks, in 1998, where he had served as president and chief executive officer from 96 to 98. Aloha was a data communications company specializing in high-performance wireless internet access equipment. In 2002, Swigert co-founded the B612 Foundation. The B612 Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to defending Earth from asteroid impacts. In May 2005, Swigert testified before the U.S. Congress on the dangers of an asteroid impact 
and this testimony was related to the 99942 Apophis near-Earth asteroid that caused a brief period of concern in December 2004 because initial observations indicated a probability of 2.7% that it would hit Earth on April 13, 2029. In 2010, Swigert served as the co-chairman, along with astronaut Tom Jones, on NASA's Advisory Council's Task Force on Planetary Defense. Swigert has continued to be an advocate of increasing NASA's annual budget to more fully catalog the near-Earth objects that can pose a threat to Earth. In conclusion, the crew of Apollo 9 worked and trained together as a team for two years prior to their flight. By the time Apollo 9 was finally ready for flight, the crew had spent seven hours in training for each of the 241 hours they would spend in space. At a news conference, McDivitt quipped that he hoped all this training did not imply that the crewmen were slow learners. Thanks for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.